Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and advocate for the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So today's a significant day. In Germany, they shut down the last of their nuclear power plants. They had 17, and this was a demand of the Green Party going back to its origins in the late 1970s. So let's uh, be happy about that, but the bigger picture on nuclear power is not good. Currently, there are 55 new nuclear power plants being built around the world, including in the U.S., two enormous uh, cost overruns and time delays in Georgia. Uh, they're building them in Britain, Finland, France, and they all have cost overruns and construction delays. And the same time and money, if it was put into more solar and wind, would create a lot more energy capacity. So there's not a rational reason to be building nuclear power plants at this point. And just take France, which is about 70% dependent on nuclear power for its electricity. They have 57 or 56 nuclear power plants. And more and more, they have to be shut down because of climate change. Rivers are running too low or too hot uh, so to cool the plants. So in the summertime, when they need a lot of electricity for air conditioning, the nukes aren't running. And uh, half the nukes were shut down this fall in France for refueling and repairs for their aging components. This is an aging fleet of nuclear power plants. And right now there's still a dozen of them shut down. So they say nuclear power is reliable, not so much. Uh, the United States still has 92 nuclear reactors operating of the 104 that were built. That means 12 have been closed and there's seven uh, that have, were scheduled to close by 2025, but they're, stay, they're being kept open, even though they're losing money and their owners wanted to shut them down. Uh, they're being kept open by subsidies in New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Connecticut, Illinois, and California. And I may have left the state out. And note that all those states, except for Ohio, are controlled by Democrats. Uh, all of the above energy policy we've heard since uh, Obama is still in effect, and Biden is very pro-nuclear. It's in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which I call the Build Back Badly Act. Um, the real proliferator of nuclear reactors is Russia. Uh, they've built one in five nukes around the world, and its state-owned nuclear power company, Rosatom, is building 15 more right now uh, in countries like Turkey, Hungary, Czechia, Slovakia, Finland, Argentina, China, India, Egypt, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And some of those haven't started in some of those countries, but they're on the way. And in fact, Russia has signed nuclear cooperation agreements with 50 countries. And meanwhile, I mean, just to show you, I mean, we remember Chernobyl, but uh, what is it now, four years ago in 2019, Russia launched a barge with two floating nuclear power plants on it into the Arctic Ocean. In its purpose, it's docked outside of Pevik uh, in Siberia over toward Alaska. 
and its purposes to power oil drilling. Greenpeace calls it Chernobyl on ice. And, you know, that's the first of eight of these barges that Russia plans to launch into the Arctic Ocean with nukes on them. I mean, what could go wrong? And they're not to uh, power green high or pink hydrogen, they would call it, or something like that. It's to power oil drilling and gas drilling and also mining operations. Uh, this is not green development. And then look at Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine. They seized the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant where nuclear work workers report there's heavy Russian military equipment being stored on the site. Uh, there's garbage all over the place, which is creating a fire hazard. And the plant is being unsafely operated and maintained because now Ross Adam is coming to take over from the Ukrainian uh, atomic company. And they're forcing workers to sign uh, contracts with Ross Adam. If they refuse, they get fired. And this is from a, a letter that was passed on to me from a nuclear worker in Zaporizhia. Uh, they're hiring people off the street, even alcoholics and drug addicts, to take the place of skilled workers. Or even, you know, you know, uh, maintenance workers, you know, around the site. And it's, uh, it's a very dangerous situation. And then recall that Russia, uh, when they first invaded a year ago, they occupied the Chernobyl nuclear disaster site. They had it for a month. Um, and they retreated. Uh, there are a lot of reports that the soldiers that were there got radiation sickness because they were digging trenches into the soil that's, that's contaminated around the reactor. And uh, they just dismissed the radiation dangers. There's actually a story in the New York Times today about an older lady who stayed within the uh, exclusion area. And when the Russians came, uh, they told her what, what could happen with, uh, you know, radiation in the ground. Um, so, you know, the nuclear safety issues there are a real concern and just shows that, you know, the Russian state really didn't have much concern about uh, the safety issues with nuclear power or even for their own troops. And the thing to note is that with all these Western countries uh, importing uranium from Russia and other uh, parts, components of the nuclear supply chain and actually uh, getting help from Russia to build their nuclear power plants or maintain them, there are no sanctions on Russia, uh, Russia's nuclear industry, um, which is makes your head scratch. So right now the world has 439 nuclear reactors operating in 30 countries with 55 more under construction. And this is not just a worry about the pollution and, and accident hazards and what you do with the waste from nuclear power plants. Nuclear power can lead to the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I mean, why do you think militarized and imperialistic countries like Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia want nuclear technology? I mean, this is nuclear madness. So I think as uh, Germany shuts down its last nuclear power plant today, and as the Ukraine war brings to the forefront the dangers of nuclear power, Zaporizhia Chernobyl, and the uh, threats of tactical nuclear weapons by the Russian leadership, uh, that should push our anti-nuclear demands to the forefront. 
And we should be demanding, instead of just watching, the phase out of nuclear power as renewables are phased in. And we can argue over whether we should phase out the coal and then the gas and then the nuclear and finally the oil. That's what David Schwartzman, who we had on here um, early in the year, advocates. But the point is, instead of building them, we should be phasing them out because they're a danger. And then when it comes to nuclear weapons, uh, we should demand that the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty be amended to oppose instead of promote the so-called, quote-unquote, peaceful atom. Um, and we should demand that the other goal of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which is total nuclear disarmament, finally be pursued. And we have a new treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that really lays out how to do that. Over 100 countries have signed and over 50 have had their legislatures ratify that treaty. So in the U.S., we should be demanding that the U.S. take unilateral nuclear dis initiatives to indicate it is serious about nuclear disarmament. I'm talking about things like declaring no first use of nuclear weapons, which we don't, that's not our policy. It should be. Scrap the intercontinental ballistic missiles, which Daniel Ellsberg has been advocating because they're just targets. They're not needed for deterrence. Um, and then start reducing our total number of nuclear uh, weapons toward a minimum credible deterrent. I mean, after you get above that, you're just bouncing the rubble and nobody's left to even notice it. Um, so that means, particularly with the U.S. unilaterally pulling out of the Anti-Ballistic Missiles Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and the Open Skies Treaty, that we should be demanding that the U.S. declare that they were wrong to do that and tell Russia we want to engage in renewing and updating those treaties. And that should go parallel with negotiations with Russia and the other European countries to develop trans-European security arrangements that include Russia and supersede NATO. So instead of a military bloc allied against Russia, and Russia has its little military bloc allied against NATO, we want to set up mutual satisfactory security arrangements. And that can open the door to disarmament. And also, if uh, Putin can say he got his security agreements met, he could withdraw from Ukraine, and it would be politically acceptable or at least rational, rationalizable or justifiable to his uh, political base, which is not so much the masses of Russia, but the elites. So I think, you know, that's really important that uh, we raise those kinds of demands. And, uh, you know, it's, this is not something that the Democrats or Republicans even talk about. So that's why we need the Green Party, another reason. Um, and then we had, you know, this week, this leak of classified documents by this 21-year-old racist anti-Semitic gun nut trying to impress his social media track group. Uh, and he was given a high security clearance. I mean, don't you feel safer already? And we have to realize that men just as young and maybe just as... Uh, I don't know what to say, you know, got their, you know, a poor judgment and got their priorities uh, screwed up. They are in charge of nuclear weapons 
you know, land-based ICBM sites, submarines, strategic bombers, and particularly field commanders who have tactical nukes. I mean, they could go rogue and start something on their own uh, in this country, but also in Russia and every other nuclear weapons country. I mean, we're really lucky still to be here. Um, back during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, U.S. ships had a blockade on Cuba, and there was a Russian submarine below them, and they started dropping depth charges. And the commanders of that nuke thought the nuclear war had that submarine thought the nuclear war had started. So there were two military officers. They agreed they should launch their nukes at the U.S. And there was a political officer who also had to agree. And he said, no, you know, we're not sure there's a nuclear war going on. Let's wait. So that's how close in that instance we came to uh, nuclear annihilation. So like I said, this should be a top priority in our advocacy and activism. It's not even an issue with the Democrats and Republicans. And that's another reason why we need the Green Party. So let's take your questions and comments. Is that number of new commercial plants? Yes. I know the U.S. military has 160 reactors on Navy ships alone. Uh, that sounds right. And uh, there's something like a dozen nuclear submarines at the bottom of the sea. Uh, many of them American. Some are Russian. I think those are the only two countries who've lost nukes at the bottom of the sea. But, uh, yeah, that's another nuclear danger. And uh, my number was not the military reactors on uh, ships and submarines. Richard Pink, do you think that burying nuclear waste in plastic containers along the shores of the Great Lakes is a bad idea? That is what they're doing. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Um, I mean, there are nukes you know, about 30 miles northwest of here, uh, there's four of them. Well, three of them, and then there's another one about 50, 60 miles west of that. And they're storing the nuclear waste on site. Um, I didn't know about it being, well, maybe plastic containers for what they call low-level waste. Uh, the fuel rods and the other high-level waste is, I think, in uh, concrete containers. But just to have that waste is a bad idea. And right now, probably the safest way to store it is on site as these nukes are decommissioned. They've been looking for a long-term repository somewhere under the earth. The problem with that is shipping that waste across the country. I mean, the anti-nuclear movement, we call that mobile Chernobyl. Um, they looked at uh, that place in uh, Nevada. I forget the name of the mountain, but it turned out to be... Uh, uh, have earthquake faults that was not safe, and they've been looking at a site in New Mexico, but there are problems with that. Um, so uh, moving the waste is a problem, as well as storing it on site where it was made. So we still don't have, and there probably isn't a good solution to the waste. I know Finland puts it in what is said to be stable geological formations under the earth for their nukes. Um, and that may be the safest, but it's still 
uh, fraught with problems, you know, generating this nuclear waste, some of which lasts for half a billion years. Uh, you know, we, we humans have only been around for two or 300,000 years and no civilization has lasted more than a thousand years. So we're really leaving our posterity if they survive uh, climate change or nuclear disaster uh, with a long-term problem. It's just, uh, it's criminal. Scout Trooper 164, oh, and what do you think of the mother of a six-year-old killing a teacher being charged? I think that's smart because that was poor handling of weapons. Um, I don't know the details of the charge, but the fact that a six-year-old got a, a, a weapon with ammunition uh, and was able to discharge it and, and shoot their teacher, uh, yeah, the parent is probably responsible. So, uh, you know, my first thought is, yeah, the parent uh, should have some consequences and uh, hopefully set an example for other parents that have uh, weapons in the house. Um, so I think it's smart. Heidi Gillette, have you watched Michael Moore's latest film, 2019, Planet of the Humans, which gave a pretty dismal outlook on alternative non-fossil fuel energy solutions, especially massive solar panels and even wind uh, towers? Yes, I did. I, I think it's overly pessimistic. Um, you know, some of the concerns they have is, are there sufficient uh, rare earth metals to do renewables? And there are. The real problem is how do you uh, extract them from the earth in environmentally safe ways that also protect uh, the workers who do it? And that, I think, is the bigger problem there. Um, so I, I think... You know, I, I can't remember the details now. It was four years ago. But, you know, I heard a lot of things in there that I just knew were wrong, knowing what I do know, know about solar and wind power. So um, there is a lot of pessimism out there about the possibility of switching to renewables. Uh, my concern is that, and this is something we talked about with David Schwartzman back in January, um, some of these people are just advocating, you know, that we lower our consumption, uh, don't uh, expand the productive capacity anywhere, including in the global south. And that would condemn billions of people to miserable poverty and early deaths. And I recommend David Schwartzman's uh, work. In fact, there's one that was in Climate and Capitalism, uh, and it was a critique of degrowth. That might have been the title. And uh, you know, he, he lays out, you know, why we should, certainly in the affluent global north, I mean, what, what, he, what he says is, uh, and this is based on statistics, you can have the maximum uh, feasible life expectancy for a country with about three and a half kilowatt hours uh, a year of energy per person. And the U.S. has about three times that. So we can... Uh, get more efficient 
and reduce this wasteful consumption. On the other hand, the global south, their power production from renewables needs to grow uh, quite a bit so those people can live a decent standard of life. Um, I'm, I'm concerned that Michael Moore's film and many other you know, articles and, and statements that are being made um, are basically saying uh, there's no solution to the climate crisis. Uh, it's not possible to transform our economy. So we just got to cut back and be poor. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's necessary. And it's certainly not, I think, politically feasible because the poor aren't going to stand for it and they're going to fight back. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I did see the film. I thought it was uh, overly pessimistic and had a lot of things that were just wrong. Yeah, uh, Chris, put the article from, uh, yeah, A Critique of Degrowth by David Schwartzman. It's in the chat. And I think that's a good place to start in considering this question. Scrap Trooper 164, it's official. We're in Cold War II. The Pentagon is examining discord, and we have boots on the ground in Ukraine. This is bad news. Uh, we have 14 boots on the ground. It's not even clear that might be the Marines stationed at the embassy, which is, you know, we got them everywhere, even in, in uh, Russia. So um, there is, you know, uh, speculation and, and some evidence that uh, we may have special operators providing intelligence to the Ukrainians, but a lot of that seems to be out of country. So, um, yeah, we're in Cold War too. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we've got to head it off. That's why I'm advocating that the U.S. Uh, very publicly go to Russia and say, we got to renew these nuclear disarmament treaties and we got to negotiate mutually acceptable security arrangements. Nominally, that's what Putin said he wanted before he invaded Ukraine. And with 150,000 or more troops sitting on Ukraine's borders, he made a demand that NATO pull back to its... Uh, military deployment that it had when Germany reunited in 1991. And they wanted it done like now. And, you know, that was a ridiculous demand. Russia wasn't serious about it. I think they were laying a narrative for their invasion, saying they were uh, under threat by NATO. Um, but we should call, it, call Putin's bluff. At the time, the U.S. did say, you know, while we're not going to say Ukraine can't ask to be part of NATO, that's up to Ukraine. They were seeking to talk to uh, Russia about uh, security arrangements. And Russia, you know, they had this ultimatum and they didn't get it. They were going to invade and they did. Um, so uh, I think, you know, the U what the U.S. can do is, you know, make these initiatives. And first of all, to Russia, because they got the most nukes and they're right now being very aggressive in, in Ukraine and as well as Georgia, Moldova, Africa. Um, there's a civil war going on between two military factions in Sudan the last few days. One of those factions, which is not the military itself, is called the Rapid Response Force, uh, which has Russian, Russians have influence in it. The Wagner Group is there. Um, so what I'm saying is, uh, you know, Russia's being very aggressive. We need to talk to them, but we should also talk to all the nuclear powers and also China. Um, you know, there's a lot of saber rattling going on by the U.S., which, you know, provokes China. 
Um, and then China responds, you know, like the military exercises they did around Taiwan last week. Um, so I don't think this Cold War is inevitable. You know, we should seek uh, mutually acceptable security arrangements and uh, a detente if, if possible. And uh, so, you know, the ball is in the U.S. court. We have a lot of leeway. We have such a massive military and uh, nuclear weapons that we can make disarmament initiatives to show we're serious without jeopardizing our security in the least. And that's, uh, you know, what I think we should be advocating, that the U.S. take the first steps and then call, you know, Russia in particular, but other nuclear powers uh, to come to the table and let's get in alignment with this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Let's just uh, take them off the, the chessboard and, uh, you know, protect ourselves and our, our posterity. Rivet King 17 is someone who lived through it. What what is the less reaction to the fall of Soviet Union in the global choice of an alternative? That's a good question. The left was divided. I mean, even then you had a Stalinist authoritarian, uh, you know, basically the capital C communist block of uh, left parties. And then you had uh, the social democratic parties, which had more aligned with the West, like the SDP in Germany and the Labour Party in Britain. And then you had a, a third camp of uh, independent socialists who said neither uh, Washington nor Moscow. And uh, they were saying at that time, and we had an organization called the Campaign for Peace and Democracy East and West that was advocating this, is that it was time to uh, push disarmament, take up Gorbachev on his uh, call for a common European home uh, with much reduced uh, military forces and collect the peace dividend and use it for domestic needs and uh, sustainable development around the world. And what happened was, uh, I think the Stalinist left was confused. They were nostalgic for the, for the Soviet Union. They thought the left had a big loss. Uh, others on the Democratic left were saying this is an opportunity for disarmament and the peace dividend. And unfortunately, the what's called the left in this country, the Democratic Party, it's not. It's a center-right party. In Europe, it'd be more like the Christian Democrats in Germany. Uh, under Clinton, they uh, expanded NATO uh, and basically pushed into, uh, got aggressive with NATO in uh, Yugoslavia, particularly in uh, Serbia and Kosovo, and uh, became basically made NATO into a, a global NATO that was a imperialistic force. And that more of that came to fruition uh, under Obama, particularly in Libya, although it was the French that really were the driving force behind that. Obama apparently was a little bit reluctant, but he went along. Of course, Hillary Clinton was pushing that. So the Democratic Party, quote unquote, left uh, you know, they made the choice of what is now a Cold War. And uh, the old communist left was demoralized and the democratic left was weak. And we really didn't press our demands hard. You know, after Reagan and Bush won, 
a lot of the liberal left was just happy to have a Democrat in there, even though it was uh, Bill Clinton who was, you know, implemented in terms of domestic policy, neoliberal uh, deregulation, free trade, uh, privatization policies that the Republicans couldn't get past when Reagan and, and Bush were in power. Um, so, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, if you're looking at the Democratic Party to save us from the Republicans, sometimes they complete the Republicans program. Um, and now today we got a Republican Party that's moved way off to the right. You know, this uh, medication abortion drug, they're, they're taken off the market, uh, makes it very hard for, I was listening to a report this morning about how women in the South in Florida, where they have uh, 80,000 abortions a year, uh, they're going to have to go not to Georgia or South Carolina or Alabama. They're going to have to go up north to get medical attention, which is going to squeeze these services and make it harder for women up north to get abortion services. And that's the Republican Party we got now. And uh, so anyway, uh, the left was not prepared to deal, wasn't strong enough to really pose an alternative that was for peace and democracy. And uh, it's still what we need now. And unfortunately, the, the Democratic left is uh, certainly, the independent left is certainly weak in the United States. It is does have parliamentary representation in most European countries where they have proportional representation. So that would be the Greens and the uh, Democratic Socialist parties uh, coming out of either the, the post-Stalinist parties, communist parties that decided they would uh, become democratic socialists and the other parties coming out of uh, more independent left traditions and Trotsky's traditions that are uh, pushing a democratic left policy in Europe. They got representation in their parliaments, which brings us back to what I've been, you know, uh, pounding away at since the end of the 2020 presidential election. We got to change our electoral system. You need to push for ranked choice voting for executive offices and proportional representation in legislatures. Uh, then the Democratic left, the independent Democratic left, would have representation and the debate would change. You know, imagine if, uh, you know, the members of the squad and some of those other Democratic socialists in, in Congress uh, and a lot more that were independent or they were part of a independent left party. Remember, AOC said at one point when she was still supporting Bernie Sanders in the primaries, in any other country, I would not be in the same party with Joe Biden. That's what she said back then. Um, if we have proportional representation, that would be true. And we'd have a party on the left that could uh, raise their demands in, in the give and take of Congress from a much stronger position than they have now, where the Speaker of the House, the Democrat, or the leader, now, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has a lot of sway over those, uh, over the progressive, the left wing of the Democratic Party in terms of committee assignments and whether they're going to uh, back primaries against those progressives and so forth. So, you know, that's a long way to answer that question. But unfortunately, we had an alternative. Uh, the pro-democracy left was too weak. And we've got a Cold War. 
and in this country, we don't even have representation in Congress. And we got to change the electoral system to get that. Lee Showrun. Now Republicans are trying to find a way to get Biden indicted, even if they have to frame him, since they think Democrats are doing it to Trump for a political purpose. Yeah, the, the Republicans, they, they don't care what the reality is. They're just going to make stuff up. Um, so we're going to have a lot of hearings uh, from the Republicans, and they're going to create a lot of, uh, you know, uh, noise and smoke. Uh, and they're not going to be addressing the real issues that face us. And uh, not that the Democrats don't have a lot of corruption. I mean, our system institutionalizes corruption by making public elections privately financed. So the Democrats, as well as the Republicans, go to the rich and the corporate interests to get the money for their campaigns. And then they owe those rich interests. And it's legalized bribery. Um, that's why, in addition to changing the way we elect people, we should elect them through a public financing system. You know, I'm for a system where once you qualify for the ballot, you get a grant. Everybody gets the same grant to run their campaigns. Level playing field, private interests have no influence. And then the politicians can, you know, make their best case with that budget and let the people decide. Um, that's another reform we need. Scout Trooper 164. Apparently, Supreme Court of the United States Thomas, Justice Thomas, was hiding billionaire gifts. I don't know what this means. I think it's more evidence of this legalized uh, uh, criminality, you know, bribery. Uh, I don't know if that billionaire, you know, we, we don't have, I guess, direct evidence that he was, you know, pushing Thomas to make this or that decision. Uh, but, you know, he was making sure Thomas feels good about the billionaire class. And uh, the fact that he was hiding them, you know, uh, could create grounds for impeaching Thomas. Abe Fortas, who was a a liberal justice appointed by uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he ended up resigning, but there was a move to impeach him for much smaller uh, things like, uh, you know, taking a, a nice speaking fee uh, while he was a justice or, or teaching a class at a university and getting paid a pretty handsome fee at that time. But those amounts were peanuts compared to what uh, Thomas has been getting. So, um, I guess that's the way the Democrats can push back against the Republicans if they want to do a lot of hearings and, uh, you know, instead of legislating, you know, have examinations of uh, corruption or alleged corruption. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but Thomas is, uh, he's a hypocrite. You know, he portrays himself as somebody who likes to take his vacations by riding around in a, I guess a truck, or maybe I'm confusing them with that basketball player, at least the RV. And uh, that turns out not to be true.
Vicki Corden, I am scared. In Florida, almost no restrictions to buy assault weapons or any weapons. Yeah. Um, another thing that comes to mind is this crazy governor of Texas wants to pardon a guy that uh, drove into a group of Black Lives Matter protesters and killed one of them and was known on his social media for saying he wanted to kill blacks and Jews. And this governor, why am I forgetting his name? I guess because I don't want to think about him, uh, is saying he's going to pardon this guy who was you know, convicted of murder. He hasn't been sentenced yet, but uh, I guess the technical question is, can the governor pardon him before he's sentenced? And apparently legally he can't. Um, yeah, I see Frankie Lee saying it's crazy here in Texas too. Um, it's, yeah, we got the Republican Party is not just a regular, normal conservative party anymore. It's neo-fascist and uh, openly racist and uh, authoritarian, and it's a real danger. And I guess my beef, one of my beefs, with the Democratic Party, instead of really focusing on defeating and crushing the Republicans. I mean, Biden should have landslided uh, Trump, who's got, you know, nothing rational to say to the voters. Uh, and Trump, I think Biden could have done that by pushing, you know, a very popular uh, policies like raising the minimum wage. And instead, Biden tried to run in the middle. And now that he's in office, he wants to do bipartisanship with this neo-fascist party that tried to overthrow his election. It's not how you defeat fascists. You've got to defeat them, not work with them. And uh, so it's scary because we got a Republican Party that's become neo-fascist and a Democratic Party that doesn't know how to fight them. Vicki Corden, the Fifth Circuit judge in Texas, needs to be impeached. Impeached or resting too. I'm not sure what you mean by resting too. It is judicial overreach. I don't know how to spell his name. Yeah, it starts with a K. I'm not going to try to spell it either. And I haven't read the decision, but I've read about it. And uh, he's just making stuff up. I mean, he's really overreaching. And the Fifth Circuit has been really packed with these MAGA Republican judges who... Uh, they have access to grind. They're not sitting there trying to interpret the facts in the law and make decisions based on that. They've got ideological agendas, in this case, anti-abortion. And uh, even the Supreme Court, I guess, stayed his decision until there can be more hearings. But, um, you know, that's a problem. The, the, the right-wing Republicans have got a lot of crazy judges uh, into the federal judicial system, and it's they're a danger too. Via email, the French Supreme Court approved it, and now Macron has officially signed pension age increases into law. How do workers win when capitalists can ignore even massive protests like in France? What well, he can win elections, uh, get more control in the legislature, uh, get a left or progressive uh, candidate elected in the next presidential election. Macron is very weak. Um, so they can take the power electorally 
in France and reverse this decision. And a number of the other neoliberal uh, reforms that the Macron administration has been uh, pushing or administering. Uh, you know, the street protests, I expect, will continue. Um, and I've, you know, I think I've noted here before that uh, the difference between now and 1968, when it was another crisis in the streets, the May-June events in 1968, back then there was a division between the labor movement and the old left parties and the new social movements around uh, feminism and ecology and uh, LGBTQ rights. And now they're united. I mean, this is a social and ecological. In fact, the left, five left parties have formed, uh, they call it something like the union, social and ecological union. And the Green Party in, in Germany, I mean, France is very much a part of that. And so uh, they, and the Greens in particular made a lot of gains at the local office. They have mayorships in major cities in France, uh, I think includes Paris. Um, so they they have a route and uh, they better win because on the right, Le Pen is also growing. The center cannot hold in France and the left better get the power before the right does. So I think, you know, the workers have to organize for the you know, next elections coming up in France, as well as keeping the pressure on in the streets and using those street protests as a way to educate and mobilize people around, uh, you know, popular, progressive, economic, and ecological demands. There's a lot of action in France around ecological issues uh, parallel to this pension protest. Scott Trooper 164, what do you think of Russia's terrifying new draft law? This could be either bad news for Ukraine or even worse problems for Russia, especially with them kidnapping Ukraine children. Um, I think it, it's both. It's, it's bad news for Ukraine because they're going to mobilize more people. There's new draft law. Basically, they're issuing uh, by electronic means notices to people to report to the draft board, I think like within 25 days or something. And if they don't, uh, they lose driving privileges, uh, doing anything with the state, like getting a marriage license. Um, so there are real consequences. And then there's, you know, uh, criminal uh, penalties and you can end up in jail. Um, so I heard uh, last couple of days, there's a lot more people running for the border, although they've closed the borders so that, uh, you know, they're going to have to find a sneaky way out if they want to avoid this new draft. Um, and I think in Russia, there's there's a lot of tension. And I'm just going to give you some data points, and I don't know quite what to make of it, but uh, Evgeny Bogosian, the guy that runs the Wagner Group, has decided to try to take over a political party called the Just Russia, which is mildly social democratic in its social and economic program, but very socially conservative and ultra-nationalist uh, and pro-Ukrainian war. Um, so that may signal he's looking to compete for political power or have his people in uh, office, starting with uh, the St. Petersburg City Council. But there'll be uh, elections in 2024. Is it 2024? I think so. For the State Duma and the Russian presidency. Uh, so you got that political conflict. You have 
ultra-nationalist white Russians uh, who are putting out this racist and uh, anti-Muslim Islamophobic, Islamophobic, Islamophobic uh, screeds, and they've had street protests against the mosque being built in Moscow by uh, Muslim immigrants from Asia and uh, the Caucasian areas. Uh, so, and that's been uh, amplified by, you know, hate speech on Russian state media by some of these ultra-nationalist white Russian commentators. In response, uh, the Volga Tatars in Tatarstan burned or set on fire a Russian Orthodox church. So you got ethnic tensions and the ethnic minorities are being disproportionately sent to the front lines in Ukraine. There's a lot of dissection with that. And then there are more private military companies like Wagner Group being formed. Um, the big oil companies, Rosneft and Gazprom, are they've had these private military companies to protect their assets, but they are beefing them up. And some people think they're getting ready for a power struggle in Russia. So how stable Russia is, I don't know, but I'm just giving you some of the news on that. Um, and if Russia, you know, had civil war over, you know, for power with all those nukes running around, that's terrifying. You know, you'd rather see a, a more orderly transition post-Putin, but uh, it's not clear uh, that would be the case. And for Ukraine, you know, throwing more cannon fodder at the front lines is bad news for Ukraine, no doubt. Um, and, you know, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children is... Uh, such a horrific crime, you know, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on this. Uh, some of these uh, children have been recovered. Uh, parents have had to, because they can't cross straight into, for example, in uh, her song, uh, students were told they were going on a two week summer camp or camp in Crimea. And basically the parents had no choice. And then they were not returned to her song. And the parents would call, and, and some of these children are still in Crimea. Some were sent to Russia proper. And, you know, one way or another, the, the kids and parents got reconnected. Now, to get those kids, uh, you know, there were stories this week, I think, in the New York Times, maybe it was the Washington Post, but, you know, of, of mothers who had to go through Poland, uh, Belarus, and then into Russia, you know, driving you know, like 3,000 miles to get their children and then drive back and come back into Ukraine from Belarus because they couldn't cross directly uh, through the Russian-occupied areas to Russia. Um, and those were, it's been like 31 children. And the number of children uh, abducted, the, the Ukrainians say they have a few thousand documented. Some say, you know, it's tens of thousands. Um, it's just a horrific crime. Um, now, how the draft relates to that, I'm not sure. I mean, the Russians say they're re-educating these Ukrainian children to be uh, proper Russians, uh, which is a crime of genocide in itself. Um, and, you know, some of the older children who may be 16 or 17 when they're abducted, you know, will soon be 18. And they could be drafted and sent to the front lines to fight against their own country. Um, so... It's a terrible situation. Frankie Lee, Howie, do you think the terse and other transphobic types 
are being used as another boogeyman to scare the bourgeoisie further right. What can people do? Um, I think the TERFs, well, the TERFs, you know, those are trans-exclusive radical feminists. They have targeted uh, groups on the left, socialist groups. The Green Party was targeted. Uh, some of them came from the Democratic Party. In fact, I've seen Facebook posts from some of the TERFs that came into the, Democrat, into the Green Party. Uh, they, they said, well, we couldn't get our way in the Democratic Party. They wanted the Democratic Party's support for the Equality Act uh, you know, rescinded, and they tried to do that in the Green Party, and we told them to get lost. Um, so as far as scaring the bourgeoisie further right, I think it's not the bourgeoisie, it's the, it's the Republican base. I think the big capitalists, you know, they don't really care about this issue that much, most of them. Um, it's really about mobilizing and scaring people into supporting the Republican Party because, you know, transphobic types, according to them, are, uh, oh, I'm sorry, trans people have a, a, the trans agenda to convert their children into being trans people uh, or gay people. And, uh, you know, so they're trying to scare the, the base and mobilize the Republican base to vote Republicans. Um, so I think that's where most of the energy is going right now. And then what can people do? We got to stand up for trans people. We got to say trans rights are human rights. We should support the Equality Act, which the damn Democrats didn't pass when they had both houses of Congress because of that filibuster they wouldn't they wouldn't challenge. Um, so, you know, the Greens need to be really clear on that issue. Um, you know, some Democrats duck on it. Although the Republicans are trying to, you know, make it a big issue, so uh, we got to speak up. And uh, you know, the the danger here is, uh, you know, violence against trans people. You know, they have are, are murdered at a high rate, particularly trans women. And uh, so that's, you know, we need to speak up and defend them. Scott Trooper 164, this feels like the Russians are becoming fascist or repeating many mistakes of Nazi Germany from the past. History repeats. Um, yeah, Russia is moving from authoritarian to really totalitarian in terms of it totally closing up uh, independent civil society, you know, organization, self-organization, independent media, uh, even just making statements. I mean, you got one case that's got a lot of attention where a girl in about sixth grade wrote a, uh, did a little drawing uh, that, you know, showed Russian troops sending bombs at a uh, mother and daughter in Ukraine. And it was, you know, an anti-war statement by a 12-year-old. And uh, she's been taken from her parent. Her parent is being charged just for making an anti-war statement. That's that's where Russia is right now. And, you know, there is an anti-war resistance. There's an underground anarchist movement that's doing sabotage of railroads and throwing Molotov cocktails and recruiting stations. And some of these people are being caught and, and sentenced long, to long prison sentences. Um, so there is a resistance. Um, there's a Russian leftist named Ilya Bukrakis who uh, is with the Russian socialist movement. 
And when the war broke out, he had to flee because he was afraid, you know, he'd be sent to prison. And, and he was in Turkey for a while. Now he's in uh, Berkeley, California. He got a teaching job there. And he's written two articles on uh, Russia becoming fascist. And uh, one of them appeared in Tempest. Maybe both of them did. Um, but Ilya would rate this. I'm going to put it, I'm going to try to spell his name and put it in the chat. Um, but look up his articles. I think they're the best analyses I've seen of how Russia has evolved. He's he's pretty well known as a uh, author. He wrote a book called Dissidents Among Dissidents, which is about the left, basically from you know the late Soviet period through through the current uh, place. And it's uh, put out by Verso, which used to be called New Left Books. Let's see, I think I spelled this right. So we can put that in the chat and uh, people can Google his name and, and look for his articles. And I already see somebody's put the, uh, yeah, from managed democracy to fascism. Chris is fast. There's the name, Ilya Butrakis. So, um, Look for his writings. He's going to be on a speaking tour that the Ukraine Solidarity Network is organizing for the fall. He'll speak in Chicago at the Socialism Conference over Labor Day weekend, and then he's going to be in New York in the Bay Area and uh, one or two other cities, along with a Ukrainian leftists. Uh, and the Sotsiany Rupert, the social movement, is going to uh, tell us who that person is uh, soon. So. Uh, Ilya Butrakis is somebody you should uh, read if you want to understand uh, the political evolution in the in the move toward a fascism in in Russia. Richard Pink, would you support a Chinese brokered peace in our time uh, negotiated to end the war in Ukraine? Well, peace in our time is. Uh, a quote from uh, Chamberlain in the appeasement of uh, Hitler's Germany. And I don't think, you know, China wants to broker this, but it's hard to figure out what they're doing. Their so-called peace plan was more a statement of principles. The first principle says uh, all countries should observe. And uh, it said pretty forcefully, I can't remember exactly how it said it, uh, the territorial integrity, independence, and sovereignty of all countries, which implicitly says Russia should get out of Ukraine. The uh, EU ambassador from China said, I guess it was last week, maybe the week before, that uh, China does not recognize Russian control of Crimea, which is interesting. On the other hand, uh, you know, Xi Jinping went to uh, meet Putin in, in, in Russia. And they came out with a joint statement, a bunch of joint statements. One of them said, uh, we oppose the uh, deployment of nuclear weapons on foreign territory. And then a week later, Putin said he's deploying nukes to Belarus. I, I can't imagine Xi Jinping was happy about that. Um, on the other hand, China's getting very discounted prices for oil because of the sanctions and the war. They didn't, you know, Russia can't sell that oil to the West as much. 
uh, but you know, in in the prices uh, discounted for China, so they're benefiting from it. On the other hand, China wants to keep its access to markets and technology in the EU and the U.S. So I don't know what China's going to do. Um, a piece in our time that uh, basically uh, let Russia keep some of the land is occupied. I think would be like Chamberlain's appeasement. It would be appeasement of Russia and. You know, as I indicated earlier, it's being very aggressive, not just in Ukraine, but especially in Ukraine, but also in Georgia, Moldova, um, Kazakhstan. You know, they went in there to suppress that oil workers revolt. And, uh, you know, those were workers at plants by companies like Chevron and um, I know it was Chevron, a couple other Western countries. So, um I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, what you have is uh, competition and cooperation between these various imperialist powers. And so, you know, I would support a peace brokered by China that the Ukrainians found acceptable. They are the ones under invasion. They're the ones being oppressed. They're the ones that get to define what is a just solution. They're not... They don't want to take Russian land. They just want Russia out of their land. So uh, is China ready to go along with that kind of uh, peace agreement? If they are, great. If not, I'm not so happy about it. Um, so I don't know what China is going to broker or try to broker. Uh, Brazil was just there and, and Lula said the same thing. You know, they, they do want the West to stop sending arms to Ukraine, which, uh, you know, I see as negative. I mean, if the oppressed can't defend themselves, are you really standing up for the oppressed? So it's, uh, and the other thing is, uh, you know, Xi Jinping has been talking about indicating, hinting that he's going to call President Zelensky of Ukraine, and he still hasn't done it. Last week, he, maybe about a week ago, he indicated it, it would be soon, but it hasn't happened. So it's hard to figure out what's going on. I'm just giving you, you know, some of the news around that question. But uh, as far as the peace agreement in Ukraine, you know, the Ukrainians uh, have to define, you know, what is just for them. Uh, and then even that is, you know, how long will it last? You know, if you, for example, people calling for a, a ceasefire. Well, a ceasefire that freezes in place Russian-occupied territory is one thing. A ceasefire that allows Russia to withdraw uh, peaceably is another thing. So a lot of people are calling for a ceasefire in negotiations without being very specific. And, and what you've got is uh, people like Medea Benjamin saying, well, the U.S. should use its economic and military leverage over Ukraine to uh, force them into a land for peace deal with Russia, which to me is, you know, two imperialist powers carving up Ukraine. Um, and then you've got uh, Richard Haas, the president, he's the outgoing president, but he's been president for a long time on the Council on Foreign Relations, has an article in Foreign Affairs this week saying that, uh, you know, we should support Ukraine's counteroffensive, but when it comes to fall, uh, it's time for negotiations. And he's basically saying the same thing Medea Benjamin said. We uh, should use our leverage to force Ukraine to accept some compromise. And uh, 
I heard him say, even before this article was published on Morning Joe a few weeks ago now, uh, saying that there would have to be, quote unquote, hard conversations with Ukraine after this counteroffensive, uh, basically indicating, you know, whatever you get or don't get, that's going to be the end of it. And we're going to uh, scale back military support. And he said, quote, uh, since when does a little country like Ukraine dictate to the United States of America? So, you know, that was your imperialist uh, mentality right there. So it's a lot of things up in the air. But I think the bottom line is, you know, as internationalists, socialists, we should support the Ukrainian people fighting off this war of aggression by Russia. And uh, take our lead from them, listen to them. Too often they're invisible in these discussions. And everybody's talking about what Zelensky or uh, uh, Putin or Biden said, or, you know, Schultz or Macron or Xi Jinping. And they're not listening to the progressive social movements in Ukraine, the trade unions, the feminists, the socialists, the anarchists, the environmentalists who are saying, you know, give us arms to defend ourselves, take back our land. We want your solidarity. Um, you know, our struggle is just. Um, they get left out of the discussion. Or if they're brought up, some of the people that support Russia say they're, you know, they're run by the CIA, which is garbage, but that's sort of their standard thing. Whenever people rise up against oppression and it's uh, against a power that is opposed to the U.S., these people say, well, those people can't be rising up. It's uh, It's got to be the CIA without any evidence. So we, we got to get clear on what's really going on in the world. And people do rise up and fight for their freedom. Cole McMullen. Howie, what do you think of having a progressive tax on landlords to fund a conversion of apartments to housing cooperatives? Um, I think it sounds like a good idea. Um, and, you know, so that, I guess the progressive tax would mean uh, the, are we taxing income or property? Um, if it's landlords, maybe you're talking about a progressive property tax. So when landlords amass large, uh, you know, assets in, in apartment buildings, uh, they have to pay a higher tax. Um, that sounds like a decent idea for me. Um, I do say on housing, we should have rent control, particularly now after the uh, COVID uh, uh, pandemic and the, the stall in, in building uh, homes and particularly affordable homes. And after the uh, collection of massive amounts of apartment buildings by uh, Wall Street uh, hedge funds and private equity firms, like uh, it's either Blackstone or BlackRock or maybe both, who have become the biggest landlords in the, in the country. Um, so rent control and then public housing. We can build more units of affordable housing at lower cost through the public sector. But there we've got to repeal the uh, Faircloth Amendment that the Clinton administration got through, which said uh, we can't build any more units of public housing unless they're replacing other units of public housing that were uh, destroyed you know, or, or taken down. So it just limits the number of public housing units. If we build 
of public housing, so it's a major part of the market. Now it's less than 1%. In many European countries, it's like 20 or 30%. That creates a, a yardstick in the market so that the private landlords have to compete with those public rents. And also in Europe, those public housing projects are uh, open to everybody, not just low-income people. And so you have mixed-income housing. You don't concentrate poverty. And rents come down across the whole market. So I think those are also solutions we should push. But the progressive tax on landlords, you can do at a municipal level, I imagine. So that's something you can do pending investment by states or the federal government in public housing and enacting rent control. Emil Sachs, Howie, will you have a program regarding the Indian Child Welfare Act and its probable destruction by RW, neoliberal SCOTUS? Not sure what RW stands for. Will the National Green Party be issuing a support uh, in support of its retention? Um, I think a program on Indian right wing, okay. Um, yeah, the Indian Child Welfare Act, I know you brought that up before, and, and I looked it up, and I think it is uh, making it harder for uh, Native parents to maintain uh, their uh, guardianship of their children. Um, so it makes it easier for uh, adoption or state agencies to take those children away. Um, and I'm not remembering many of the details, but... I know it was it was not something that we should uh, allow to happen. So, uh, National Green Party issued a statement. Uh, that's something that could be done. It's not the fastest process, but it's probably a good idea. And uh, I guess what I'll say is I will I'll look into that again and maybe draft a statement and submit it and see if they'll issue it, or if not, make one on my own. Because uh, I did look it up, and, and it was uh, it was bad news. It shouldn't shouldn't be enacted. Okay, we've gone an hour. We started a little late, but we're ending a little late too. Um, I'm looking in the chat. Um, and she gives some facts about the Indian Child Welfare Act, and that you know that rings a bell. Um, and there's a lot more to the story. And I forget the oil company's angle, but it was pretty nefarious. Anyway, um, we're going into the Earth Day to May Day period, which is traditionally a time when Greens do a lot of actions. What we're going to do here is on uh, next. Saturday, April 22nd, we're going to have Mark Dunley, who heads up the uh, Eco Action Committee of the Green Party, uh, talk about the Eco Socialist Green New Deal, uh, what we got to do about banning plastics, and just, you know, what's going on in terms of environmental action. Uh, so that's to uh, commemorate Earth Day. And then a week later, on April 29th, we're going to as we approach May Day, May 1st. We're gonna have uh, Bill Barry, who's a longtime union organizer, who's a Green from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And 
uh, Natalie Monarez, who is a activist in the Amazon labor union in Staten Island. And it's probably Natalie, from what they tell me, is going to do most of the talking. I think it's going to be very interesting because uh, she's at the forefront of the new union organizing that's being done independently of the traditional unions. So uh, that's the next two weeks. They should be uh, very interesting. And uh, in the meantime, have a good week, everybody. And we'll see you next week. We got